The title of today's message is The Danger of Forgetting God and is found in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As you probably know, I'm an exegetical expositor preacher. That means I explain the Bible verse by verse, book by book. And so we're going through the book of Hosea, which is called one of the minor prophets. It's God speaking to Israel through the man Hosea using his marriage to a woman who was unfaithful to him as an illustration, a life illustration of Israel and its unfaithfulness to God. So that's where we're at this morning. I'd ask you to bow for a moment. Let's ask God to be our teacher as he directs our thinking through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this day, the privilege of being here, the privilege of having breath and life to move, to enjoy you. Now we ask God that you'd guide and direct us, teach us this morning, we would pray in Christ's name. Amen. As many of you know, I am a political junkie. That means I watch a lot of the Fair and Balanced channel, Fox News. When uh, Sue and I watch programs like The O'Reilly Factor and Outnumbered, Hannity, The Five, Gretchen Carlson, On the Record, and The Kelly File, she gently reminds me that all these Fox News babes are bleached blondes. They're not real. She asked me if I noticed their fake eyelashes and their other deceptive things about their appearances. Well, that reminded me of a random survey which was taken of women across the United States recently. It found that 15% of women tint their hair. 38% wore rouge. 98% wore eyeshadow. And 22% wore false eyelashes. 93% of these ladies wore nail polish. And yet, 100% of the women taking the survey were in favor of a resolution which would condemn false packaging. (laughs) The truth is, we all dislike fakes, don't we? We don't want to be deceived by other people. But some people do put on false fronts. Now, ladies, don't take that too literal. We especially have a distaste for those who profess to be genuine about their religion, but really are fakes. You know, the hypocrite who says one thing and then does another. Last month it was in the news that the Seattle-based megachurch Mars Hill was in the process of dissolving. All of the 15 congregations, including the Olympia chapter, or church, would need to go independent, merge with another church, or simply cease its operations. This stunning announcement was only 17 days after Mars Hill's founding pastor, Mark Driscoll, resigned following a church investigation, which concluded he led the church in a domineering manner. Now, as you know, Driscoll is the founder of the Mars Hill's megachurches, and it was the fastest-growing church in America. In fact, it has 15 congregations, as I mentioned, in five different states. Driscoll, however, has been a controversial figure from the very start of his ministry, and that includes his extreme views on sexuality and the role of women in the church. It's now been revealed through many news stories that Driscoll would bully those under his care. And yet, when confronted about it, he was quite evasive. And when criticized, he referred back to his reverted back to his domineering tactics. Last August, Driscoll was forced to leave the ministry, take a leave of 
absence for a while while the elders investigated his aberrant behavior. During that time, Mars Hill bled not only members but staff as well. The issue was over his intentional deception of not only the elders as leaders but of the congregants and even his spouse. Now I'll trust that you'll recall if you were here from the introduction to Hosea and last week's exegetical uh, expository uh, review of chapter 1 that Hosea's wife, named Gomer, was unfaithful. She pretended to be a virtuous woman, pledging her fidelity to her husband, and did so for a brief time during her marriage in which she produced three children. But then she left her husband and her home to chase after a paramour. I pointed out at the time that the Lord would use this flawed marriage of Hosea to highlight the unfaithfulness of his people, Israel, towards God himself. So in our text this morning, we will be reminded of God's long-suffering, his patience and his kindness for his children, Israel. How he stays his hand of judgment upon them, even though they are deceitful and chase after other gods. Now you'll recall that Israel had been split into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This morning, the text of Hosea is aimed at the northern kingdom called Israel. And the prophet is holding the people to task for their spiritual adultery. Last week, through the imagery of the names of the three children of Hosea and Gomer, it was stated that Israel, the nation, was no longer loved and not his people. Loami and Lorumaha, no longer loved, not my people. No pity, no mercy, no love. This morning, the Lord will pronounce judgment upon the people of Israel 13 times, and he signals this by the use of a small phrase, I will, I will. You'll recall from last week that the first two verses, or I should say the last two verses of chapter 10, offered hope for Israel. Even though God would bring judgment upon them, there was still hope of restoration. We, we saw a glimpse of that restoration in those two verses, and we see it again in the 13 verses that we look at this morning. We will see that Israel experiences an increase in her population at some point in time, and that she will have a reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms into one nation. And finally, when those nations are reunited as one, a leader will emerge, a single leader called the Messiah who will rule and reign over his united people for a thousand years. You and I know that as the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the beginning of the restoration of Israel. But today we examine a very difficult text which speaks of the judgment that Israel brings upon herself for her unfaithfulness. Now this text is not simple to understand. Some liberal scholars want to take it in an allegorical sense. That is, they see this as some kind of poetry in which the family of Hosea is used as an example to teach us something about God. While those who take the Bible literally see this as a formal indictment of Israel in a court of law for her infidelity against the Lord. So how should we understand this text? On a human level, this text is about a family, one family, a husband and a wife, three children, all pawns in their mother's 
infidelity. On another level, the national level, this text is about a legal indictment, a complaint being brought in court, seeking judgment against a wife of adultery. So the text, in my opinion, follows the legal process, which moves from an indictment to the announcement of punishment. If you can visualize this in your heart and mind, we should see this as a courtroom setting with the husband and the children sitting, sitting here with the judge in front and the unfaithful spouse in the docket as Hosea seeks a writ of divorce. Some of us have experienced this same pain and sat in such a courtroom contemplating such separation, and we know the finality of that word and the pain that can be felt in divorce. This pain can be heard in the words of Hosea when he says this in chapter 2, verse 2. She is not my wife, and I am not her husband. This speaks of the reality of the situation which has developed over the years between Hosea and Gomer. The wife of his youth has now become the unfaithful spouse. She has broken her vows. She has given her attentions and affections to others. This is a tragic scene of failure that we see repeated in our world today and many of us have experienced. When we speak of divorce, we often speak of both parties being at fault. But this is not the case here in Hosea. This is a a, a loving, godly man deserted by his wife for a paramour. He feels compelled to take action against his wife the mother of his three children. And according to the Mosaic law, she should have been stoned to death for her crimes. On a divine level, we have the charges of infidelity being brought against Israel by God. For Israel has been unfaithful to her vows, her covenants made to God in Deuteronomy. He is seeking redress from Israel for her crime of worshiping, of chasing after, of seeking her affections from Baal and other false gods of the pagans that surrounded the nation. So then the northern kingdom's crimes are articulated through the marriage of Hosea. Israel's unfaithfulness to God in its pursuit of Baal and other gods can no longer be tolerated by Yahweh. He seeks a legal break in their relationship. However, in all the ugliness of this scene, there is a slim ray of hope. The Lord does not call for the punishment of Israel with death. That's not being sought. But he does seek discipline. During the course of these proceedings in in this chapter and the next, we will see three charges are brought against Israel as Hosea brings three charges against his wife Gomer. All are introduced by the word therefore in our English text. We find these three therefores in verses 6, 9, and 14, which explain the punishments that are sought for the wayward wives. We will examine the first two of these therefores this morning. Now, as you know, to understand the biblical text, one must know who the speaker is and who the audience is. In chapter 1, it was the Lord speaking directly to Hosea. Here in chapter 2, the audience has changed. Your first impression on reading the text might be that Hosea is speaking to his children, Loami and Lorumaha. For the words are said to a brother and a sister, or if you look closer, closely at the text, we'll know, you will notice that there are plural forms being used, which suggests more than two, 
more than two sons, more than two daughters. And as you know, the marriage of Hosea produced two sons, but only one daughter. So this is God speaking not necessarily uh, to, this is not Hosea speaking necessarily to his children, but is God speaking to the children of Israel, the brothers and sisters of faith, if you will, the covenant family of God. It is God speaking, in my opinion, to the believing remnant in Israel, and he's encouraging them to chastise, to encourage, contend with the unfaithful of those who live in the northern kingdom of Israel. The prophet Hosea then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses his personal tragedy as a means of addressing the children of Israel. As he speaks to his children, we should understand God speaking to the children of Israel through the believing remnant. Gomer, having defected from her true husband, is chasing after a false husband, the God of Baal and others. This is the pleading of her children with her to return to her husband and be faithful. On another level, this is God speaking to the children of Israel to leave Baal and to return to him. So if you would turn with me to Hosea chapter 2 and verse 1, that's our introduction. You can find this text on page 898 of the Pew Bible, which is in front of you in the pew. Let's begin our examination of the formal charges brought by the complainant. In verse 1, the Lord instructs Hosea to say to your brothers, again plural, possessive, Ami, and to your sister, Ruma. The statement which follows. But let's look at that verse 1 first. The first thing you should notice is that the, ho- the names of Hosea's children have been changed. It's no longer Lo Ami and Lo Rumah, but the Lo has been dropped. And if you know anything about Hebrew, Lo corresponds to our English negatives, no or not. By removing the Lo from the two names, the author where the speaker has changed dramatically the meaning of their names. He's changed it from a curse to a blessing. This is coupled with the two pronouns, brothers and sisters, which, as I've said, are plural and possessive. So it's not being directed to the children of Hosea, even though he is the speaker of it. This is really God speaking to the faithful remnant of Israel to go and, as we will see in verse 2, contend with the unfaithful children of Israel. The emphasis here is a spiritual relationship then between the people of God and the unfaithful children of Israel. They are brothers and sisters of one another because they are fellow Jews. The good news here is that they are no longer lo ami, not my people, or lo ramaa, no compassion or love. It's been changed. They are simply Ami and Romama, which means you are my loved people. So we see this hopefulness in the text. Those who follow the Lord in obedience receive the compassion and the love of God and are his children. That's the contention the pleading that will take place in this text. This predicts a future event in which the Jews will return to God and once again become the sons of the living God, as we saw last week in verse 
11, as you will remember. But here in verse 2, we should understand these words of being spoken to Gomer, literally, Gomer's children, but on another level, they are being spoken to Israel. So let's look at verse 2, where we see the indictment. Contend with your mother, speaking to the children, Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her be put away from her harlotry, from her face and her harlotry, from between her breasts. Now, understand that when you study the Bible, whenever a word is repeated in a verse, it's very important. It's being underscored. It's being highlighted. So it's very important that we ask why the children are to contend with their mother. Why are they to to go and plead with Gomer? There is a state of disquiet, a state of contention which exists between mom and dad, Homer, Hosea, and Gomer, and there is a state of contention which exists between the Lord and the unfaithful children of Israel. The prophet's words here are then quite clear. His first charge is that Gomer should separate herself from her husband. The Lord is very cognizant that there's a broken relationship here, just like Hosea is cognizant of this broken relationship. Notice he says, she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. The point could not be clearer. How could Gomer be his wife when she's sleeping around with other men? It is with these words, then, that the Lord metaphorically accuses Israel of being unfaithful to the covenant. You'll recall back in Deuteronomy chapter 29 through 31, Israel had, had said emphatically that they would obey the covenants made with God through Moses on Mount Sinai. And here they were breaking the core of the Deuteronomy covenant that's found in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy verse 1, where it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. This is the privilege that was Hosea's if he wanted to take it. He had the right, as a faithful, godly husband, to say to his unfaithful wife, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. And she was done. She was out of the house. They were divorced. Do you ever wonder why Middle Eastern women wear all the jewels on their foreheads? Do you ever see that? They have the bands around their forehead. Do you think, why are they walking around with gold, silver, and, and precious stones on their heads? That's because if the husband ever came home to the house and said, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, she's out with only that which she has on her body. That was the privilege of the Jewish husband, according to the Deuteronomic law, that he could do. But that's not what God is pursuing here. He's pleading with his unfaithful wife through his children. He's contending with them. Again, this is God, through this image, metaphor of the relationship of Hosea and his wife, pleading with the children of Israel, the unfaithful children of Israel, to return to him. He's asking his faithful remnant, his children, to go to them and contend with them. Rather than exercising his legal rights to divorce Israel, the Lord sends his children to plead with their mother Israel to return. Similarly, the Lord is calling upon unfaithful Israel to return to him, as in the marriage of Gomer and Hosea. Now, the contention is so great that it's illustrated by this picture 
of Gomer's paramour being between her breasts. In other words, that's the place of exclusivity for the husband. She is showing her relationship, the depth of her relationship to her lover, which should have been reserved only for her soulmate, her husband. No one should ever be in this place. Now in verse in the next 10 verses we see that because of Gomer's disaffection, disaffection to her husband, because of Israel's chasing after other gods, there are consequences as I said of the aforementioned phrase I will. God will judge them 13 times using this phrase, I will. His judgments or punishments come, will come upon his unfaithful wife. And similarly, Hosea's punishments will come upon his unfaithful wife, all with the intention of returning them, restoring them to the relationship. Look with me at verse 3. I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. Holy cow, what does that mean? What a picture that is. This is the first of the consequences that will be felt by unfaithful Israel for their sin. The Lord is going to take away all their clothes, right? He's going to strip them down to their birthday suits and send them out into the wilderness. Isn't that what's going on here? No, this is a picture. This is an object lesson. The object lesson here is one of shame and ridicule that Israel will suffer for her, for her disaffection towards her husband, God. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we read this, of the punishment of women who committed adultery against their husbands. It says there, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord, because your lewdness was poured out in your nakedness, uncovered through your harlotries with lovers, and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood and blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with you whom you have taken pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all of your nakedness. A private act is being disclosed publicly for all to see to bring shame and ridicule upon the offender. That's what's taking place here. The Lord is going to punish the northern kingdom, Israel, by exposing them to shame and ridicule between the nation, before the nations of the world. Because Israel worshipped Baal publicly, their punishment must be public as well. And so the world will see her sin as exposed by God. According to Ezekiel, this public shaming preceded a public execution of the adulteress. But that's not what the Lord is seeking. He is seeking restoration of her to her place. The imagery, then, of Hosea's legal battle with his wife Gomer should all of this take place at the city gates. All of this public shaming would be done at the gates, which was the courthouse, if you will, during these days. The elders would sit at the gates and they would make these rulings. So Hosea is there bringing his wife. He's going to publicly shame her for what she has done. The second punishment here uh, is found uh, beginning with the phrase, I will. Once again, the Lord says, I will make her like a wilderness and make her desert land and slay her with thirst. Again, this is figurative language. The Lord is saying that Israel will be deserted by their Lord, just as they were 
in the wilderness of the Sinai. He will leave them to thirst and hunger. Jeremiah also warned about this in his prophecy, saying, Be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you and make you a desolation, a land not inhabitable. When the Jews heard these kinds of words, they would automatically, instantly think of the children of Israel wandering through the deserts of the Sinai for 40 years. God had promised them a land of milk flowing with milk and honey as grapes the size of beach balls. And here they were out in the desert, dying of thirst and wanting meat. Why? Because they refused to obey. Because they refused to be faithful to God. They broke the Deuteronomy covenant and lost the blessing of God. Go into the land, take the land, conquer the Canaanites, and you will have the land I promised you. What did they say? Oh, yeah, do that. The giants. The giants are there. No. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They broke the covenant of God and were unfaithful. So he removes his physical support from them. He would no longer show them love and compassion. Now in verse 4, we see the third consequence for their unbelief, for her unbelief, her unfaithfulness, her spiritual adultery, when the Lord says, I will have no compassion on her kids because they are children of harlotry. Here the Lord threatens Gomer, or Israel, if you will, with rejection of her children for their unfaithfulness. God's going to reject unfaithful Israel because of their spiritual adultery. This seems overly harsh in the family setting, of Gomer and Hosea and the three kids. Why punish the kids for the mother's doings? It's not their fault. So what does all this have to do with the children? This stupid thing keeps coming undone. Hold on a second. Why should the kids be brought into the problems with the parents? Everything okay, Dan? Okay. Why bring the kids into the middle of this? Why are they brought into, go plead with your mother. Go try and get this resolved. Have her come back. Why do the faithful remnant of believers have to go to the unfaithful children of Israel and plead with them to come back to faithfulness? Well, we learn in verse 5. When judgment falls on one, it falls on all. When the rain falls on the Just, it falls on the unjust as well. Looking at verse 5. For their mother had played the harlot. She had conceived them and acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread. Get this. Who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. The Lord was going to use the children to get to the mother. The Lord was going to use the faithful remnant to get to the unfaithful remnant. You see, the faithful children of Israel were being shamed by their association with their mother, unfaithful Israel. The text says here that she continued in her sin. She had a settled determination to continue in her aberrant behavior. She does not want to change. Gomer enjoyed her lovers. Israel enjoyed worshiping the false god Baal. Why? Because both Gomer and faithless Israel mistakenly thought that their essential needs were being provided 
by their lovers. Notice the agricultural uh, nuances here. I will go after my lovers who give, who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil. She's saying that her, her necessities of life and her luxuries of life are coming through her lovers, Baal and the other false gods that they follow, while Gomer is saying they're coming through her paramours. These staples found here in life were essential for living. You can't live without bread and water. In the Near East, one of the things that a god was said to supply to any of the ancient peoples was fertility from the ground and fertility from the womb. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 12, we read, They will come out and shout for joy at the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and the young flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will laugh joyously again. The truth is, the truth is, the truth is, it was Yahweh who was providing not only their needs, but their luxuries as well. But they were giving all the credit to a Canaanite god that was a statue about this high made of wood called Baal. Just as Gomer was living off her lovers, her paramours, and saying that they were providing her everyday needs as well as her luxuries. So we can see that Gomer's attitudes towards her paramours mirrors that of the unfaithful people in the northern kingdom of Israel. And her intent and their intent was to continue to seek their lover. I will go after my lovers. There's a settled determination by Gomer and by Israel to stay with her adulterous partner. She's resolved in her heart of hearts that she's getting her needs met by her boyfriend. And even luxuries were coming her way. Here's the Lord's declaration that he's going to eliminate all access of Israel to her needs and her luxuries as a punishment. By doing so, he removes any notion that this false god, this Baal, is actually giving them her needs, giving her her needs. For it is God who provides them. It is through this loss of blessing from God that he intends to get the attention of the unfaithful wife. Notice that she believes, really, at root of all of this, is that she's earning her daily care and her luxuries. Because what does she call them? My bread, my water, my flax, my, my, my. Just like people today who do not recognize that the blessings of America come from God... And not from their own hands. They think it's our military, our industrial might, our this, our that. They think that they've earned it somehow. Well, let me tell you, God's going to remove it someday to get your attention. I believe he's in the process of doing that right now. Despite all of this, the Lord's intentions are to restore Israel to her promised place of blessing. There's never discipline in the Bible 
that doesn't have restoration as its goal. The second use of the word therefore, which begins the second round of discipline, is found in verse 6. We'll look at the third next week. But looking at verse 6, the Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will, says the Lord, hedge up her with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find the paths. This is the proactive God working in the life of a sinful person. Both of these I wills anticipate the event that will take place. That is, it anticipates the exile of Israel to Assyria. They're going to be taken out of the promised land, off in captivity to Assyria because of their sin. But there will be a return, the Lord promises later on. But first comes exile. What does exile mean? What does taken into captivity mean? It means that there is going to be a separation of Israel, unfaithful Israel, and faithful Israel gets dragged along with them. Just like you and I are getting dragged along with the sinners who are leading us down the primrose path to hell today in both Washington and Olympia. We're getting dragged into their mire, their homosexuality, their lies, and their continual dragging the nation into the sin of decadency. We just get dragged along, don't we? Your job is to contend with them. You know that, don't you? You've been called as faithful believers to contend with them and their evil agenda of man and man and marriage. God hates that. Goes against the design. Goes against the created order. God didn't make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. Just look at the plumbing. You've got to be a moron when you look at the plumbing and you can't see God's design. But of course, we want to deny deny God. We didn't want to deny there's a creator. We want to say it all happened by accident. Yeah. A bomb went off and the encyclopedia was blown apart and it all fell back together in order, right? This anticipates the exile of Israel from the promised land. That must come first because God's going to disconnect Gomer from her husband. God's going to disconnect Israel from her paramour, Baal, from her lover, Baal. How do I know that? Well, it says he's going to make a wall around them. He's going to throw up these impediments to them. He's going to put a wall in their path and thickets in their path. Verse 7 states, she will, purpose, she will pursue her lovers, but she won't be able to overtake them. Why? She will seek them, but she will not find them. Why? Well, the Lord tells us. Verse 7 again. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than it is now. There's this wall, there's this thicket, there's this hedge placed around them. They're taken into captivity. They're removed from the land of Israel. They can't get back to worship Baal because they're in Assyria. God's done that. Why? So that she will say in her head, Israel, hey, you know what? It was better with my first husband, with the Lord. I think I'll go back. It was better for me then than it is now, that's for sure. Here we see a change of mind. Here we see the Lord's 
actions, changing the heart and the mind of Israel to do what's right, to obey. I think I'll go back to my first husband. That's what I'll do. It's a whole lot better than here is in Assyria, making bricks, serving the Assyrian kings like slaves. There, at least I had my own plot, and I could make my own garden and, and grow my own figs and vines. I think I'll go back. The truth is, most sinners don't turn to the Lord until they hit rock bottom. They're not ready to have this change of thinking about who God is and who I am until they hit rock bottom. Then, it's, then they recognize their sin, and they're willing to deal with it until things get better, and then they go, go back to their old ways. Here Israel is cut off from her lover, cut off from the land of promise, and she finally can comprehend the immoral actions of spiritual adultery she's been committing. It will take this exile from the promised land to awaken her desire to worship the Lord their God. Then I will go back. Some of you were in that place. Some of you have left your first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been worshiping the world around you, the material things of this world. Your job, your home, your cars, your money. You worship all of that. What do we mean by worship? It all comes before the Lord. That's what worship is, putting something ahead of God. Just like Israel worshipped Baal, because they thought Baal was giving them their everyday needs, their luxuries. It's Baal. He's bringing the rain, not Yahweh. I'll go back to my first husband. Things have gotten so bad. I'll go back to my first husband because it was better back then. Many believers have found this years after walking away from Jesus and to spiritual adultery with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Wasted years in the wilderness. Truth is, no one wants to, no one likes, no one wants to be cut off from the Lord, the God they supposedly love, but we do it anyway, don't we? Even though Jesus promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, we oftentimes leave him, don't we? I want you to notice something in verse 8, that sin is oftentimes based on ignorance. Sin is often based on ignorance. Look with me at verse 8. For she does not know, is Israel a she, okay? Gomer, Israel. She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain. It was I who gave her the new wine. It was I who gave her the oil. It was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which they then used to worship Baal. If you're not doing Bible study, how can you know what God wants from you? You're going to fall into sin because of a lack of knowledge. Hey, I don't give a hoot what God says. Well, then, my friend, you're going to be in sin. You've got problems. It's like driving a Chevy and you don't want to read the handbook about how to service it. You're going to have problems. The lack of knowledge is not an excuse for sin. You have been called to be his disciple, to understand the teachings of the master. How are you doing with that? Israel might not have known what God had wanted because they were ignorant, willfully, 
that wasn't an excuse for their sin, and God was going to judge them for it. He was going to hold them accountable. First thing he does is he removes his hand of blessing from, oh, you think Baal is giving you your everyday needs? You think Baal is giving you your luxuries? Well, how about if I just cut all that off? Hmm. We'll see then. Don't we do that? We attribute our blessings to God. I work really hard. I work 40 hours a week. I bring home the bread. I put a roof over your head, honey. It's me that does it. No, it's not. It's God who's given you health. You ever lose your health? Who do you turn to? God, why is this happening to me? It's God who blesses you. Israel thought it was Baal. They were crediting a false God. Hey, our wine, our flax, our oil, all our good stuff coming from Baal because we worship him. Let's worship God and Baal at the same time. Then we'll have all our bases covered. In James chapter 2 and verse 11, Moses tells Israel, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord by serving the Baals. I don't know what God's you're serving, but whatever it is, you're doing evil in the sight of God, sight of the Lord. If you're not worshiping Jesus Christ exclusively, you got problems. You know what the kings of Israel did? Hey, I know what we'll do. We'll marry our daughters off to the sons of pagan kings, and then we won't have any problems. They won't attack us, and we won't attack them. But one of the deals that came along with it was that they had to worship Baal. We'll worship your Yahweh. We'll add him. We'll add his little image to our lists of gods, and you'll add Baal to yours. But God doesn't like that because he's an exclusive God. They started syncretistically to practice a worship of Yahweh and other gods, just as Gomer thought she could hold on to Hosea and have her other lovers as well. Well, if you've been to Israel, as some of us have here, you know that the winter rains and the early springs bring all the rain that there is in Israel. You know, you get all dumped on in about six weeks. And then it's dry the rest of the time. Well, the Lord, wanting to get their attention and knowing the weather there because he created it, he's going to withhold his blessings of rain. Drought. To see if that will get the attention of his people. This translates to man's fragility of life. You know, there's something about an ancient people, an agricultural people, that in some ways they understand God better than we do. Because we go to Winco to get our food. Or to Walmart, right? They went to their garden. It was connected straight to God. When I lived in rural areas, pastored rural churches, they knew about God. Is the Lord going to bring rain today? Is he going to withhold it so we can harvest our crop? We've lost all of that, haven't we? But they knew the fragility of life, that if the rains didn't come at just the right time, they were in trouble economically and even continuation of life. Well, the people of God, along with the kings, bought into this nonsense. Hey, Baal's providing our needs. Baal's bringing the rain. Baal's blessing us. And they started to worship the false god of Baal. And the Lord said, I know what I will do. I will withhold the rains. Well, if you know anything about Israel, one of the responsibilities of every Jewish male was to bring the first fruits of their harvest to God. Right? It's called first fruits. 
It was done annually to reinforce this truth that God, Yahweh, was the provider of material blessings to the people of God. Now he's going to establish their guilt and the consequences of it, the punishment that will come, the discipline that will come, the captivity in Assyria by withholding the reins, and people will finally realize that it was God who brought the harvest, the first fruits. You see, they really did what was totally unacceptable in the sight of God. By their actions in worshiping Baal and attributing to him their blessings, they violated the first commandment that's found in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Every Jewish male should have known this, not only by precept, understanding it from the written word of God, but by practice as they go and they give their first fruits to him. And in fact, when they did so, every Jewish male was required to say the following to the priest at the temple. I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. So it was quite clear. They might have thought they were ignorant, but every one of them should have known the truth. They were acknowledging their blessings to Baal instead of to God. They were acknowledging the meeting of their basic needs to a false god instead of the real God. Now the second of these three therefores, as I said, is found in verses 9 and beyond. And it says there, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will withhold all of these things, says God. I will take away my wool, my flax, given to cover her nakedness. So what's happening here is God is withdrawing. He's taking away the things that he has supplied to Israel since they left the wilderness of Sinai and entered into the promised land. He's going to take away the grain. He's going to take away the wine. He's going to take away the wool and the flax that you may close with to cover your nakedness. So that's the imagery that's been flowing throughout this text. And as I've said, they've been attributing this to Baal instead of God. One of the principles that's continually reaffirmed throughout the Old Testament is, as I offered you last week, obedience brings blessing. Israel enjoyed plenty of blessing. Harvests, offspring for animals and children, security from their invaders. All of this was theirs when they obeyed the God, obeyed the Lord. But when they disobeyed, disobedience brings discipline and loss of reward. When they started to worship Baal, they opened themselves to drought, pestilence, war, death, and exile. As Moses warned in the book of Deuteronomy, the enemy shall eat the offspring of your herd, the produce of your ground, leaving no grain, no new wine, no oil, and it will cause you to perish. And in the book of Joel, God says through the writer there, what, what's that gnawing that you hear? What is that that's left by the swarming locusts? What haven't they eaten? Well, like a virgin girded with sackcloth, for the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are being cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the field is ruined, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up. The punishment of God, the discipline of God for worshiping those things that he's told them not to. They've committed spiritual adultery. But there is coming a time of restoration. Look with me at verse 10. But then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. He's hit bottom. 
hit bottom. Here is the start of her restoration, the restoration of Israel. It begins with her hitting bottom, the uncovering of her nakedness. The word that's used here in Hebrew is nablot, lewdness. means nablot is the word. It's defined as a blatant, I think I have a slide for that, Danny, a breaking of the covenant that results in the disgrace of the whole covenantal community. The root word is used in other places. Not the same word, but the root word. It's used in Achan's sin in Joshua, and it's used by God in other places to speak of fornication and sexual sins. He then promises in verse 11... The Lord promises, I will put an end to your gaiety, to your feasts, to your new moons, your new Sabbaths, all your festal assemblies. They were giving credit to Baal for all of these things in their lives. They were having the celebrations for Baal taking precedence over those of God. So he says, I'm going to remove them. I'm going to put an end to them. What does that mean? No more New Year's Eve at the Needle. No more 4th of July picnics. No more Thanksgiving dinners or Christmas mornings. Oh my, even your worship at the Sabbath day will be stopped. All of the blessings of God will be stopped because of your corrupt admixture of worship with Baal. The Lord could not stand it anymore. No more Memorial Days. No more Juneteenth. No more free dinners on Veterans Day. Since they would not or could not stop worshiping these worthless idols, the Lord says, I'm going to remove all my gifts to you. Now his people will finally see the truth of their actions. Isaiah predicted this in chapter uh, 10, verse 6. He says, I will lay it waste. I will not be pruned or hoed, but I will put up thorns and briars. I will also charge the clouds and rain no rain anymore. The clear results are then found a little bit farther in the text. In verse 12, when it says, I will destroy her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages. These are the wages of, from my lover that have been given to me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. The picture here is of the Lord laying waste to Israel's produce, to Israel's land, to the fig trees, to the vines. They are representative of God removing his hand of blessing, material blessing to his people. He takes them away to make a point. And the point is, Israel was not receiving wages from her lover when she received her bread or wine or wax or her wool. Those came from God. Hosea will later write in chapter 9 and verse 1 about this saying, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltation like the pagans the nations. For you have played the harlot. Forsaking God, you have loved harlot's earnings on the threshing floor. (coughs) Excuse me. Micah will say much the same. Their vineyards will be ruined and overgrown and only become fit for wild animals. The depopulation of the land will take place when the people are extradited from the land. They are exiled into Assyria. Finally, in verse 13, we read the last of God's I wills, at least for today. 
when he says this, I will punish her for the day of the Balaam. It might say in your text, or Baals in others, plural. When she used to offer sacrifices to them, that is Baal and the other gods, and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, if you've ever read through the Bible in one year, you probably missed everything that was going on here because you have to have some background. And in fact, you probably missed the most important point of this whole text this morning that I just read for you. Because it all comes down to this little phrase here. Spiritual adultery happens when you do one thing. Look back with me at verse 13. Notice the plural use of Baals. It doesn't matter what you worship. You're worshiping something other than God if you're not worshiping him. It says, I will punish her. Why? For she forgot me. Go after whatever deity you want, whatever God you want. You put the name on it. But if you forget the Lord your God, you're going to come underneath his discipline, his judgment, in order to bring you back to himself. She's zealously pursuing Baal. Why? Because she forgot me. She forgot God. She forgot what's most important in her whole life. She forgot the Sabbaths. She forgot the feast days. She didn't keep Purim. She didn't keep the feast of unleavened bread. She didn't keep it. She forgot God. She did the festivals of Baal. It's sort of like if you forgot Christmas and the meaning of it today. Duh. I can remember a number of years back during my pastorate in Vermont. A deacon came to me the week before Christmas. And he said, Pastor, I just wanted you to know that next Sunday my family and I won't be here at church. I said, that's okay. Going to visit family. What's up? We'll miss you. He said, no, no, it's not nothing of that. He said, but on Christmas Day... We stay home as a family. We open our presents together, and we enjoy them for the whole day. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I was taken aback. I was filled with revulsion at even the thought of it. I'm sure my countenance, my body language showed that. To me, it was unthinkable for a believer not to want to meet with other like-minded believers and worship the head of the body of Christ on his birthday. Who in their right mind goes to a birthday party and doesn't say happy birthday to the birthday boy or girl? Israel had forgotten the Lord. Have you forgotten Christ this morning? The word that's used there, the Hebrew word, is saka. It doesn't simply mean a mental lapse, a senior moment, or a loss of knowledge. No, it's descriptive of a refusal to acknowledge the Lord and his character, his goodness, his authority in your life. They refused. They refused to remember God and all that he had done for them. Let me ask you this morning, have you forgotten God? Are you refusing to worship him? Are you worshiping the material rather than the Savior? Are you chasing the gods of this world and the God of the world? As you know, Moses repeatedly warned the children of Israel about forgetting God and his works in their life. Let me just give you a flavor of that from the book of Deuteronomy. 
Moses writes, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligent so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, that they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes that I am commanding you today. Don't forget them. Obey them. That's what he's saying here. The Lord demands his people worship him and him alone. Again, it was Moses who, watched, who, who wrote to the, to the people of Israel. He said, watch yourselves, watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which you made with him, and you make for yourself, by making for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. Then, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It shall come about even if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I will testify against you on that day and you will surely perish. The covenant I have made with you, says the Lord God, you shall not forget and you shall not chase after other gods. Despite all of that, despite all of the warnings, despite all the memorization of these passages, despite all the feasts, despite the temple, despite everything, they forgot God. Have you? The God who saved you, the God who came into your life and changed you from a lost man or woman to a saved man or woman, from being blind to being able to see, from having no life to having eternal life. Have you forgotten him? Are you chasing other gods this morning? Have you left the Lord of your love your first love to chase after other lovers. Well, Israel was tempted. Israel did forsake the Lord to follow idols. I believe the church in America has left the Lord God that they're supposed to love to chase after the world system. We must be diligent as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to not love the world or the things of this world. Otherwise, we will become spotted by the world. Our conformity is not to be to the world, but to our Christ, our Savior, our Lord. So what does that mean? It means that we should not chase the almighty buck. We should not chase the American dream. We should chase being his disciple, becoming like him, becoming like our Lord Jesus Christ, forsaking all that other stuff. It's just stuff. We're to live as strangers and aliens in this world, not lovers of it. The world has a plethora of God. People love their homes. They love their fancy vacations. They love their bank accounts and their bankrupt philosophies. But one day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and return and hold you accountable for your loves. You will be weighed and balanced. Don't be found wanting. So ask yourself, have I forsaken my love for another spiritual adultery? Another lover? Have I left him for a paramour? Have I brought shame and ridicule on the God who died for me? Well, I have good news for you. You can still be restored. I have good news for you. You can still be restored. All it takes is a change of mind. A change of mind. A change about your goals. A change about your plans. A change about who you love the most. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, then act like it. Would you pray with me? 
Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the book of Hosea, what it meant then and what it means to us now. Help us, Lord, not to chase after other lovers. Help us to chase after the one who loved me. He first loved me. Help us, Father, to do so so that we might honor you and bless you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.